Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Those are the first seven verses of Psalm 146, which along with Psalm 147 are the psalms appointed for today, Thursday, April the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and uh, I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our sort of look through different prophetic um, words in the Old Testament. Um, today, we'll, we're going to be in Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, verses 1 to 14, which is the story of the Valley of the Dry Bones. And then over in John's Gospel in chapter 15, verses 12 to 27, is continuing the sort of the, the discourse from the, uh, the night of Passover, the final night of Jesus' life. And then in Acts, uh, chapter 3, verses 11 to 26, continuing the story of the man healed by Peter and John and the beautiful gate. So in the Ezekiel passage, the hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley and it was full of bones. So this is similar to the way John begins his, um, the revelation actually is I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and then I was taken out here to this place. And so here we see Ezekiel taken out to the middle of the valley which is where they would have dumped the bones, uh, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. In other words, they'd been there a long time. There was there was no life left in them. When uh, Suzanne and I first visited Rwanda in 1999, they took us around to various places where genocide had taken place, and they're typically around churches um, because... Um, that none of the churches there were innocent in the genocide. None of them were uh, uniquely better than the others. And, and in some cases, the priests, whether they're Roman Catholic or Anglican, brought get, told people they would have sanctuary in the church, and it was anything but. They were uh, killed while they were there in the churches. And so that's a, it, we saw so many bones you couldn't begin to count them. I mean, there was one church that was left with just as it was. So they just left all the bones there. And then outside and around the the church, they had gathered up the bones and they had dug like a bunker down in the ground. And it, and the bones were piled in there. And so you, you, you went down in there and the smell was still there. And it was awful. I mean, there were like skulls on the top and then various other bones on other shelves below that it was it was just it was horrible and and there are lots and lots of those around rwanda and so even after five years they to to say they were dry at that point would be one thing but but what ezekiel's talking about here is something even worse than that even less hopeful (laughs) even than that so he he said to me the lord did son of man can these bones live and I answered, oh, God, Lord God, you know. I mean, this is the perfect humility. I don't know. I, I don't know. I know only one thing, and that is is that anything is possible with you, and so I'm not going to rule out the possibility that these dry bones could live. And, and so then God said to him, 
<coughs> prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, because, behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I'll lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I'm the Lord. Well, you'd feel a little bit like a fool doing that, wouldn't you? But he did. I prophesied as I was commanded. And and the reality is, is that, that sometimes, even among Christians, we can be like dry bones. And we can need desperately somebody to prophesy over us or to speak truth over us that we deeply and dearly loved and God knows the plans that he has for us. And that's not to harm us, but for prosperity and a future. And so we need to understand sometimes that when we preach, when we speak to other people in the world, we have no earthly idea how dry their bones might be how far away their hope might be. And so it's important for us to prophesy life over people when they're struggling. Now, sometimes, I will say this, that that, that word of hope and encouragement will seem to be void at the time you speak it because it's not the proper time for that person to be able to hear it. doesn't mean you shouldn't speak it, though. We should always be willing and able to speak life and hope over other people. And that's exactly what's going on here, but it's going on with these dry bones. Now, I'm not going to take a position one way or another about whether this is something that that he sees in the Spirit or whether it actually happens, because the the question would then become, well, what happens (laughs) to to these dry bones to which he prophesies that come to life? So I'm not taking a position there on this. Uh, Maybe I'm a coward. I don't know, but I'm not going to take a position on whether this actually happened or whether it's something that happened in the Spirit. He said, as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. So now, the other thing to remember is, is that, that, that the only reason I'm not taking a position on this is I don't have any idea what happens to these, the, this army that, that we're going to see in a minute. I don't know what happens to them if, if they came back to life, that we have a problem, right? I mean, you've got to explain who these people are, where they came from, and what, what became of them. Um, but, the, but God raised up man from the dust and created us that way, you know, and, and I believe that. So maybe that makes me a fool, but, uh, but I believe that. And so, so if God can make man out of the dust and breathe life into him, then the key is bringing, is breathing life into him because these things are not living beings yet because there's been, there's no breath in them. They just look like freshly dead people at this point. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into him, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. So this is an acted out parable. Um, for the Ezekiel. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise from, you gra- from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I'm the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I'll put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I'm the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Now what he's talking about here is bringing them back 
to the land from the exile in Babylon, because Ezekiel was one of the prophets who, who was there at that time. In fact, he's credited with uh, beginning the synagogue movement while this exile in Babylon was occurring, and the reason he did it was because the other ten tribes, the northern kingdom that had been taken captive and um, by Assyria in their conquer of the land, of that part of the land, and then they were sent into the nations, and because they were they were exiled and dispersed all over the place, they didn't maintain the the worship of Yahweh or the knowledge of Yahweh. And so Ezekiel supposedly was the beginning of the synagogue movement whereby this exile people might maintain their distinct identity and their religion while they were exiled in Babylon and and Nebuchadnezzar was trying to convert them into being good little Babylonians, accepting all of Babylonian culture, including their religion. So that this is God's promise to bring the people back to the land. And, and remember, they were there a very long time in exile, and it would be easy for hope to have been lost along the way. So in the gospel, Jesus um, has said, if you keep my commandments, that it, it, you will abide in me. They, he said that's the secret to abiding in him is to keep his commandments. And then he goes on to say, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, they, they're still not believing that that's what's going to happen. They have a little greater belief that he's not going to live because they've certainly seen the desire of the Pharisees to, to do away with him. So here, Jesus speaks of greater love that has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and, and that they can't even begin to imagine what the depth of meaning that has. I mean, the, the love that Jesus has in laying down his life, the life of God, for his friends is, is an unbelievable thing to start with. But the benefit we receive because Jesus laid down his life, the forgiveness of sins, the reconciliation with God, eternal life, all of that, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit, all of that comes in that package. And so when he talks about laying down his life for his friends, the benefit of that far exceeds somebody who is just laying down their life so that they would be killed rather than their friends. Jesus is, is an eternal sacrifice. He says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you. I mean, you've got to prove that friendship just in the same way that he says, if you love me, you'll do these things. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master's doing. In other words, he doesn't let him in on, on his plans. But I've called you friends for all that I've heard from my father I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus said, you know, whatever it looked like, because you were looking for Messiah, and John's told us that about the first disciples, that they were looking for the coming of Messiah. So he says, you didn't choose me, though. I chose you. This was an intentional act on my part. You might have been moved to say yes, but that was the Holy Spirit working in you. He says, these things I command you so that you love one another. And so he says, I'm sending you out, and, and you, have a, you will have a mission to do, and it'll be aided by the, by the Holy Spirit, and that, that you would have fruit in that ministry, and that that fruit would abide. It would stay. It would not just evaporate in the sun. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. And so there's a measure there of our discipleship, right? I mean, does the world love us? 
because of our uh, uh, discipleship to Jesus? Does it, does it see something in us that it finds objectionable because of its rejection of him? And so it matters. We shouldn't be all that great friends with the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And this is true if you wanted to convert to Judaism, for instance. One of the things that they would tell you is is that, that you don't want to do this because you have to take on too many commandments, and then you have to do this. And then ultimately what they say is, well, if you join us, you have to understand from the beginning that the world's going to hate you. Well, the, Jesus is saying the same thing here. You know, you're gonna, you, you, to come into this and to follow me is going to mean that you'll be hated. And the proof that you'll be hated is the rejection of me. So Jesus is expanding the world in some level here to, to include even Jews who are going to reject him and who are going to hate his disciples in the same way. He said, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll also keep yours. So the same things that have been true in my ministry are going to be true in your ministry. But if all these things they do to you on account of my name, all these things they do to you on account of my name, because they don't know him who sent me. So the the proof of not knowing the Father is their treatment of the Son and his disciples. And the response to that is not to be um, anger and and to to fight back against that. It's it's to to know our apologetics, to know what we, we believe, to be able to speak into that and stand firm in our faith, no matter what, and then to pray for and love those who are persecuting us, just like Jesus did. He said, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin because they've heard. I've shared the word with them. I have spoken the things that needed to be spoken. They know that they've been exposed to the truth, but they have no excuse now for their sin because I did these things. He says, whoever hates me hates the Father also. So he doesn't just hate you. He hates the Father. And then after saying, if I had not come and spoken to him, he said, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now that they have seen and hated, now they have seen and hated both me and my father. So he said, I spoke to them. They heard the words. I told them the truth and they rejected it. Not only that, I came and did these things to authenticate myself and they rejected the signs themselves. It would be as though, you remember when at, at, in Exodus when God sends um, Moses back to Egypt to deliver the people. Moses says, I'm going to need some authentication. And so God gives him some signs that he's supposed to do in front of the people to authenticate him so that the people will accept him as the one who God has sent to redeem them. And so he does those things and the people accept him. Jesus says, I came and said things. And they rejected it. And I came and did these things. I came with signs that my father gave me just like he gave them to Moses. And they rejected that. They said no. But the word that's written in their law must be fulfilled. Quote, they hated me without a cause. So that's a prophecy from Isaiah that says that they would reject him. But when the helper comes, who I will send you from the father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you've been with me since the beginning. 
So the, if we were just to go out on our own and begin to proclaim the Word of God, absent the Holy Spirit working through the words that we speak and in the hearts of those to whom we speak, there would be no connection. There would be no salvation. The, the church would have ended had it not been for the giving of the Holy Spirit. In the book of Acts, remember, they, they've just that Peter has just proclaimed healing to the man who has been lame from birth, and now all the people are looking around, and, and they recognize this guy. And so while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. They would have known who Peter and John were. They would have known that they were disciples of Jesus. They would have known all this stuff about them. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we made him walk? We didn't do anything here. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant, Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. What a unique <laughs> paradoxical statement that is. You killed the author of life. I, I don't even know how you respond to that. I mean, he is speaking here. He, he used this as an opportunity to preach the gospel, but it, but it was he preaching with conviction or for conviction, maybe is a better way to say that, but by pointing to Jesus and saying the work that just happened here, going back to that gospel lesson, the work that just happened here, the thing you just saw, yeah, that relates back to the one you killed, the one that you demanded be crucified. <laughs> he says, "Who you kill the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, to this we are witnesses, which is exactly what Jesus said that they would be. They would be witnesses. And he says, yep, we saw this. We, we testify to, to what you did and what God did. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. You know you're not denying that this is the man who was lame from birth, who's been here every day begging. And the faith that's through Jesus Christ has given this man this perfect health in the presence of y'all. So you saw it. And just like Jesus was saying, you have no excuse. You have no excuse for your sin because you've just been given a witness to the power of Christ. And you can either deny the witness and go on about your life, or you can accept the witness and recognize something needs to change. He said, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, which is Jesus' thing, you know, prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. It's the same thing Stephen says, <clears throat> as did also your rulers. So he says, look, you acted out of ignorance, but, but your rulers did as well. So they're no better off than you. They can't hide from what they've done. But what, ha what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins might be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. So you've got multiple benefits to this repentance, that your sins can be blotted out and that you, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Sending him would be coming back coming again, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. 
Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. That's from Deuteronomy, and it's, it's exactly what the Samaritans are waiting for. They're looking for one who will come and tell things, who is a prophet like Moses. And so that's what the Samaritans were looking for. Therefore, when she goes, the woman at the well, to the people, she says, Come meet a man who told me everything I ever did, which is a prophetic sort of thing. And then they come and believe, not because any longer just because of her testimony, but because what they've seen and heard for themselves. So their character was they saw and heard, which is exactly what Jesus said, that those who have seen and those who have heard have no excuse. They can't claim ignorance. But here, Peter says that you were ignorant before. But Heaven and earth must receive until the time for restoring these things. And then he said, it shall be that every soul, this is the continuation of Moses' prophecy about the one like him. It shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he's, Peter's affirming who they are and that they have a right to Jesus through their covenant participation. But he's also indicating that that covenant participation by birth isn't enough. They've got to make up their minds about Jesus. They've got to make that decision, and if they don't make that decision right, then they won't participate in the life of the world to come, and they're not really true Israel. In the same way that I've mentioned not too long ago, that that if you ask a Jew, if this is in the Talmud, if you ask a Jew who, who in Israel participates in the life of the world to come, their answer is all of Israel. And then, then there's this parenthetical thing that says, but if you don't believe in the life of the world to come, you won't, you won't participate in it which is to say you're not truly Israel. Even if you call yourself an Israelite, even if you have all the credentials, if you don't believe in the life of the world to come, you don't get to participate in the life of the world to come, but all Israel participates in the life of the world to come. So you're not truly Israel if you don't believe that. And, and then finally he ends up with God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from his wickedness. So the purpose of God sending his son was to come to you, those who are in the covenant, Israel first, and you rejected him. And so he, all he's telling them is, is the same thing he preached on Pentecost, is that he convicts them of the sin of killing Messiah, and then it, it tells them what the, the resolution for that is, which is to repent and be baptized and turn from your sins. And it, it, it's a simple message, and it never changes. It's always the same message, and we're always proclaiming to dry bones because nothing is alive unless it has God's breath, the Holy Spirit.